to Have You Not Seen That. My name is Charles. I'm Wilson. And I'm Crossman. And uh, normally we would be talking about movies that we haven't seen, um, but this time we're finishing up our top movies of the decade. So top movies of the 2010s, we're going to do our five through first, fifth through first. Uh, so Crossman, what was your fifth favorite movie of the yeah. decade? Number five for me was John Wick. Nice. Yeah, that was on my short list. Okay. It was actually hard to choose between the John Wicks. Oh, they're, all, they're all very similar, but number yeah. one, I think, does I think the best at like the world building. So it's the best. John John one. Wick yeah. is my number two. Okay, Ooh, I got some more. A bit of a spoiler. Okay. But, uh, um, definitely the first one for me it was a clear pick. Really like <laughs> this film a lot. Um, yeah. I like the world building in this film. Mm-hmm. In that, it's just a world where like assassins are. A thing, and they yeah. are contracted, and they trade gold coins, and um, they have whole secret they have cute little rules. Yeah, yeah. Um, and John Wick, uh, you know, retired assassin, is pulled back into it when his dog is killed by a um, uh, Theon Greyjoy, <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> uh, and he just goes on a rampage and and kills all the bad guys, and in amazing. Amazingly visual ways. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, the sort of like gun kata genre, I think, like never disappoints, and <laughs> I think this is one of the one of the best and most clearly shot. Of, like it's so fluid. It's it's a dance, and they they reference that in the later John Wick movies. They bring the like kind of dancing metaphor very mm-hmm. very to the forefront in the yeah. third John Wick movie. Um, but yeah, this is just like yeah. There's this like chitty kid, and he killed your dog. What are you gonna do? And he kills him. Yeah, he <laughs> yeah. kills him and everyone who's trying to protect him. <laughs> yep. It's very satisfying to see a, a rich little asshole like <laughs> get, get what's coming. <laughs> yeah, get his cup and come up ends. Yeah, I um, remember first watching this in theaters and not knowing what to expect. Sure. Because uh, at that point, my impression was that Keanu Reeves had only been making really schlocky films. Like at that point, he had like the the like 47 Ronin's movie I think yeah. it was a huge disaster and there were some movies like that and so I didn't know what to expect but I thought it might have been something like that but the movie captured me pretty much immediately with like yeah. the first action scene I, I saw what it was going for and I was just totally blown away yeah like I had no idea I was like whoa right like that's an amazing feeling and it's one that I rarely get to feel it's something that I had with Pacific Rim it's something that I had with this something that I had with maybe one other movie that I have on my list later um, but uh, just something about the way they do the action caught me immediately. There's, it's so clean, and um, I think there's some realism to his combat style as well. Um, it's very concise. All the action scenes are, they happen and they're done before you realize. Yeah, there's a through line to everything. And yeah. Like, it's shot so clearly Yeah, well, to it, see it's, how he moves. And, it seems mm-hmm. so responsive to, like, the early 2000s, like, Bourne style of action filmmaking. Yep. Yes. Right? Where it's like the Bourne... Shaky cam. Yeah, the shaky cam. So, like... Motion blur. You're right. It's all about concealing what's happening, right? Like, disorienting the audience, right? Like, hiding what the action actually is and, like, just alluding to, you know, something cool must be happening, right? Rather than showing (laughs) you that something cool is actually happening. And it's just the, the... John Wick is the exact opposite of that. And it's so refreshing to just see... 
performers and stunt performers not try to conceal anything. It's yeah. just like it's such a confident movie. It's just like yeah, we're gonna we're gonna show you exactly clearly throughout this movie exactly what we're doing, and it's gonna blow your fucking mind. And yeah. like that's exactly what happens. Like that's yeah. exactly what this movie is. My my only critique of the John Wick films is you gotta stop doing the digital blood. It looks oh. terrible. Oh. <laughs> just get some of those packs. Squibs. Yeah, the yeah, those squibs. Are easy to do, right? And they look so much better. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of films have gone the way of like digital bug because it's like very cheap. Yep. Yeah. And do does not look good. <laughs> yeah. just, just um, and I like how this series has evolved. Like the mm-hmm. fact that we're going to get a fourth one yep. for sure. sure. And they've only gotten more popular over the time. I think the yeah. first one kind of slipped under the radar and people didn't. Bit of a cult. Yeah. yeah. And two, like, really kind of cemented this is like, actually, this is a hit movie yeah. and it's fun and. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and you can uh, tell that like the the movie people realized it, right? Like, because they the the some of the people they brought in for the second one, like there's some big names, mm-hmm. right? Like Lawrence Fishburne, is Lawrence in that Fishburne, one. yeah, yeah, I guess. But like bringing Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne together again is neat, yeah. Um, yeah. And like, and you can tell that that's what they're doing, and that this is the movie that brought them together again, or the franchise rather. You know, that's meaningful. Right? And isn't it, Angelica Houston is in the third one? Yep. Yeah. And um, Ian McShane's been in all of them. Yes. But yep. he's Good in everything. Yes. Um, so, but it's great that they have an actor of that talent yeah. to play this kind of quirky character. Right. And he, yeah. and he totally just like brings all this you know, gravitas to, to the guy. Yeah. And it's cool and it works. And it also, it feels like a film that is referencing a lore, mm-hmm. like, like that's like a book or a comic yeah. book. And that doesn't exist. So yeah. it's interesting that they're like, there's so much like lore to these films mm-hmm. that is implied but doesn't actually exist in, in reality. Well, and it's, yeah. and that's especially refreshing in a world where every little bit of Star Wars lore is getting explained in, in backstory. Like we yes. have a million superhero movies that are explaining every little bit of everything so that you can you can track exactly how this is being plotted. Yeah. Just you know how Han Solo got his name? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. You know how he got his gun? Somebody gave it to him. Oh, great. Woody wow. Harrelson cool. gave it to him. I was, fascinating. I was wondering about that. <laughs> yeah, some guy gave it to him. Yeah. Um, and, and so to, to have this, again, confidence, to have this movie that's just saying like, yeah, okay, you don't need to know every every little detail. Sometimes the Kessel Run is yeah. just the Kessel Run. And like that is is neat. Right? Well, I would like, say that's that cool. that's what I liked about the first one. I yes. felt that it was a bit more subtle or um, like restrained in its uh, showing of the criminal underworld that yeah. he operates in. Whereas I felt like the sequels uh, kind of showed too much. It felt like it showed a lot of stuff that I didn't want to know. Uh, and it felt like the world got a little ridiculous. Not a little, very ridiculous. Um <laughs> With the sequels additions to the universe, I hear that. yeah, uh, where it got to the point where in three it felt like half the people in the world were assassins, and it's just like, I mean, this is like, what are you guys doing? Right? Yeah, three worked better for me, and I'm not sure if that's just because like I knew what they were doing at this point, and it was like yeah. less disorienting. Um, but for me, two had a lot of like sequelitis problems. Like it, yeah. it felt like a setup for three, um, in a way that was kind of a bummer. That said, like. We're grading these on a curve. Like the action sequences in these movies are still better than incredible ninety nine percent of the stuff that's sure. produced out there. And so if, if it's just, you know, if you if you go there for two hours and it's an hour and a half of you know Keanu Reeves fighting yeah. people and fine. Keanu, <laughs> what's interesting too is like Keanu's not a young man either. No, like, he's he's pushing yeah. sixty, yes. I think. Yeah, and he the athleticism that he approaches this with is 
incredible. Yeah, like if you, and he can, does a lot of the stunts. A lot of them. Like yeah. you can watch his training videos, like for these movies. And yeah, it's pretty extraordinary stuff. Yeah. Like he does a lot That's of it. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty exceptional. So I think my problem with the sequel is so there's there's two ways to do action. Um, there's one that strives to go over the top by sure. doing like really ridiculous things, right? And this is something that I feel like the uh, Fast and Furious films have really excelled at, just having a yeah. big spectacle. Mm -hmm. um, a big spectacle, really cool, zany moment, and you're like, I can't believe they did that. Sure. And then there's action, yep. They they are doing a lot of the stuff for real, though, which is part of the reason I think Fast and Furious works. But I understand, no, for what sure. I agree what you're, I agree but it's what 100 with what you're right? saying. But I also like the Fast and Furious films. I think they, they do work. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah go ahead. but I'm saying Sorry. that... Um, no, Fast and Furious is great for that reason. Yes. But what I think made John Wick great was that it did the simple shootout action, but it did it very well without being boring. Yes. Yeah. Like, I would watch, like, The Expendables, which on paper would be a bonkers awesome action movie, and was just bored by the shootouts. That did. Yes. Yeah. There's nothing novel about them. They're just, oh, a guy stands out of cover and shoots a bit and comes back. It's like I'm fucking playing Call of Duty or something, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It, yes. That's been boring for 20 years. Um, whereas in this one, it had a way of doing very normal shooting action in a very slick and novel way to be impressive without resorting to spectacle. Whereas I felt like the sequels leaned more toward the spectacle side and it went away from what I liked so much about the first John Wick. Uh, you can see this more clearly in 3 where you can tell they're very clearly trying to go for crazy bonkers where he's like hitting people with horses legs and riding on motorcycles with samurai swords and um, some of the action scenes I felt like went on a bit too long, like where um, they're yeah. in the where they're in Morocco and they have a shootout with the dogs. Mm -hmm. That scene went on for so long; it didn't need to. They had like three or four waves of enemies come in to get shot. They didn't need to come in because you already got the point of the scene. Yeah. They do the same thing like five times over. Whereas in John Wick One, they show you some of the cool things that they can do with that environment, with that set of enemies, with his weaponry, uh, that combination. Um, they take it to its conclusion and it just ends, right? And they're, you know, 10 to 20 second long action scenes. I agree. Scenes. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and so this is why I feel like I like one the most and that it's like a more clear pick for me. Yeah, I think what, what one does, it does the very classic trick of leaving you wanting more. True. Right? Like you get to the end of one, it's like, oh, that was great. I want more of that thing. Yeah. Um, and two and three don't do that. You get to the end of it, and it's like, that is a satisfactory amount of that thing. Yeah, I mean, I still enjoyed them. It's, I didn't enjoy them for the same reasons that I enjoyed the first one, I would yeah. say. Yeah, and I agree with you. I'm, I'm with you on this one. Absolutely. So, yeah, cool. Good good pick. This almost made my list, too. Yeah. But but not quite. Um, so we're at five? Five. Five. Yep. All right. My number five was Her. Nice. Uh, so I really love this kind of sci-fi movie. Um, good so, ones? Yes, good ones. <laughs> um, but, like... A thing that I've really liked thinking about beyond just thinking about the future is thinking about artificial intelligence technology. Mm -hmm. And this comes through in many ways. Um, but there's a lot of interesting, like, kind of ethical and moral questions about uh, AI. And then that leads to further, like, philosophical questions about, like, the nature of life and all that, right? You can go as deep as you want, really. Um, and this one, I think, has an interesting take on it where it's, like, a more wholesome or optimistic take. Mm -hmm. Um, where they they do create like super intelligent AI, and there's no like there's no huge conflict. They don't try to take over the world. There's no Terminator. 
Right. Yeah. Um, they just kind of exist. You interact with them. It's like no Black like, Mirror twist. Or... Right. You form relationships <laughs> with them and, you know... And, that, that and then a relationship plays out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that reasonably could happen, but with some challenges because obviously, like, in this one, the AI is just a voice in a box. Mm-hmm. Right? They didn't give them bodies or anything like that. And so there's some challenges around that that are kind of funny and awkward to right. see play out. Um, but yeah, I, I love the style of this movie. Uh, it has a very nice kind of pastel look at the future. It seems like a very optimistic future where... It feels like a much more peaceful We're not underwater. world. Yeah, we're not underwater. We seem to figure things out. Uh, there's no like talk of like you know global conflict or things like that. Mm-hmm. So people are free to make AIs and fall in love with them. <laughs> yes, and things like that. Um, and so you know that's a nice change from all these kind of doom and gloom sci-fi films. Yeah. Um, and it comes to a nice resolution. I feel like that both makes sense and is optimistic. Where the AIs eventually start developing you know beyond the point where they would really make sense to us as humans Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that they suddenly want to enslave us or destroy us right it doesn't mean that we want to try to turn them off and cause some sort of retaliation which is often what happens with these um they just kind of go off to their own realm to like do their ai stuff right and they leave and it's a little sad because you have to break up with them and let them (laughs) you know advance beyond you and do their thing um, but it's a realistic um, but wholesome take on what that could resolve in. Well, and, and such a good metaphor for actual human relationships. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, cause, uh, yeah, absolutely. It, uh, on, on the one hand, like I think it's it, it's a little bit about polyamory, right? That yep. the, the Scarlett Johansson voice, her, I guess, um, like realizes that she can't get everything she needs out of this singular relationship, yep. which is, of course, true, right? Like, no, nobody can provide that to anybody else. Like, that's just not how humans work, or AIs in this case. <laughs> um, but, but also in the sense that, like, a relationship ending isn't a failure, right? And I think that that's often how a, a relationship is framed both in media and in real life, that if, yeah. if it doesn't last for your entire life, it, someone did something wrong, like that. There was there was some failing on the part of an individual, and, and I think this movie understands that that's not true. That like yeah. the 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 Walking Phoenix character learned and grew from this. Yeah. He grew closer to the Amy Adams character, and they mutually found some bonding with one another as each of their relationships come to a natural conclusion. Yeah, and that that's okay. That yeah. that it's okay. That it, it it's not you know the great love of your life. That you can just enjoy the time together, have deep feelings, share love of some sort. Learn and, then, and grow from it. And then have that end and, and, yeah. learn, and exactly learn and grow from it. And I, I think that it, you could replace the Scarlett Johansson character with an actual person and set this movie during the modern time, yeah. change very little of the plot beats, and it would still make sense and still be resonant. Yeah, just just have her, like, you know, have other Relationships and, and other interests and, and move on and that's that. And I think that that... That you could do that with this movie is a strength, and and I think it speaks to just how human and how thoughtful um, the script is, um, yeah. and it, I, I like that about it. Yeah, yeah absolutely, it's a good movie. Um, it, it also fits into a lot. We we had a lot of AI movies in the 2010s. Yeah, um, because we had this. We had uh, Blade, the Blade Runner sequel. Yeah, we had Ex Machina. Yeah, um, I'm sure there's something I'm forgetting in here because there were a lot of them. But yeah. Like, there were at least two Terminators. There were at least two Terminator <laughs> movies. Yeah, they sure did. Uh, so it, 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 you can see a lot of filmmakers being preoccupied with, with this notion. Like, what exactly is AI doing? And I think that we're yeah. seeing uh, some more mature takes on it and some more thoughtful takes on it. 
We're getting um, better developed. Yeah, and we're, we're benefiting from it as, as an audience. So, so that's good. Cool. Uh, number five for me was uh, Mad Max. Nice. So this is, I'm sure, on everybody's is it, list. Is that, it's on my list. It's my number three. Number three. It's okay. my number we're one. Gonna be, it is. Okay. We're, we're going to be skipping through a lot. I, I had a feeling that <laughs> it, it, this was Wait, my did prediction. you say it's your number one? It's my number That's one. That's down. Totally reasonable. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, what else is there left to say about this movie? Um, it's, for me, the best action movie of of the 2010s, and I think firmly in the running for best action movie ever, period. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, it, everything about it works. Like, it's just... There's no flaws in this movie. It's just perfect movie. It's, it's a, and maybe I'm going to look back on this in a year or two and feel foolish for not putting it at number one. Um, <laughs> but it, it, I, I feel like I don't even need to necessarily talk about what's good about it because everything works. It uses natural effects really well. Tom Hardy gives a, a stellar performance. Charlie without Theron, saying anything. Without yeah, he he you know mumbles every line. You can't understand what he says. Charlize Theron like it, it proves once again that she's probably the most versatile actor alive currently. Yeah. Like. Just obviously, the the director comes back from filming Happy Feet Two, <laughs> yes, and, and Big in the City, and just drops this like nuclear bomb of a film. <laughs> yeah, on. right, and and out of the blue, right? Like I remember hearing about this, and then like, oh, they're making another Mad Max movie, like twenty years after yeah. uh, the the last one. It's like, oh no, wait, this was. The, the, one of the greatest films ever made. Um, That's kind of how I felt too because I had watched the first two <laughs> Mad Max films and I just didn't like them at all. Right. I thought they were kind of hokey. The action scenes weren't very convincing but I think a lot of that was because of the technology and time that they had. Yep. Um, because they executed it perfectly in this one. It's kind of a similar movie to Mad Max 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously a lot of car chases in the wasteland and all of that, right? But it's more it's done more convincingly with the modern technology and effects. It's like a mix of two and three, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and that's just a very obviously and un... It, 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 it's a feminist text, right? Like, mm-hmm. it just is explicitly a feminist text. It doesn't apologize for that in any sense. It's just... It, the, the Tom Hardy character takes a back seat. He acknowledges immediately that that's not immediately, but eventually that that's where he belongs. The text agrees, and and that's that. Yeah. Um, and it is so bold in that, and just so confident in asserting that position in really not the environment you would expect it to be asserting that position in. Um, and it works because of it. So yeah, it's phenomenal. And also, like in the face of the apocalypse, yeah. the movies like you still need to make. Moral, yeah. correct and moral choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, no matter the odds, no matter, you know, your situation, the correct choice should be the moral one. Mm-hmm. And the film, like, states that, like, very confidently. Yeah. 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 And it's right. Yeah. It, it's not and just confident. It's also right. It's <laughs> it's right. And it, it also shows that, like, you may not survive because of that. Mm-hmm. But, however, it's still the, like, correct choice to make. Something yeah. to give your life for. Yeah. yeah. That's the Nick Holt character. Like, that's... Yeah, exactly. That you you sometimes there, there's there are things bigger than you, and things bigger than your survival, um, and it, it it's hard to accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you gotta. This also is a film that illustrates the concept of the fail son really well, <laughs> um, where we have this kind of like <laughs> sort of like mentally handicapped but enormous and muscular son who is the inheritor of of uh, the kingdom of our uh, yeah the, the wasteland yeah the wasteland and to show that 
he's a monster, but he, you know, in, like... Also an idiot. Yeah, an, an idiot <laughs> and, and sort of, like, rules this land because of, like, his father's position. Yep. And his father's brothers, like, you know, help, help or, like... Men who are of like the same stature of, of his father mm-hmm. are, are the one are the like kind of the deciders in in this in this world and mm-hmm. and it's just such a perfect illustration for like the Meghan McCain's and uh, you know the Eric, all the Eric, Trump kids. The, all the Trump children and <laughs> even um, Baron and all the Bi- the Biden children <laughs> yes. and yeah, yeah the Clintons yes yeah pick, yes. pick a name right yes the Bushes like yes. all of them so it's, it's an anti fail son movie which I think is an important. <laughs> Um, and transgressive statement in our in our time, right? So, it, it also yeah. it, it, it handles the visual storytelling so well because it, incredible. It is, it's so light on lines. Like the the, the dialogue in this yeah. movie is you know uh, three or four pages probably, yeah. um, but you like you have that moment where uh, Tom it's it's nighttime. Tom Hardy like they're being approached at night by whoever the next bad guy is. Tom Hardy is trying to snipe him and missing and. They have one bullet left, and he, he acknowledges that Charlize Theron is better than him at this. He, like, crouches down to, so she can use his shoulder as a mount, and she nails the shot. Yeah. yeah. And, like, all of this is executed basically with no dialogue. Like, it's just, yeah. you know, all done visually and all done with just the characters looking or grunting at one another. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's that. Um, and that is, it's so... It, I imagine it's so tempting for directors to over-explain and to say, yeah. like, this is why we're doing this thing, or to... Just show it. Just yeah. show it. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, they could easily have had him say, like, oh, I can't do this. Right, you like, right. And, or anything. You're better at this than yeah. I am. Or than I'm acknowledging that. Yeah. And it's her going, thank you. This way. Thank mm-hmm. you for doing this thing. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah none of that. And another thing that I think was lacking in the original films was this movie is so visually vibrant. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they somehow managed to make this desolate desert environment looks so vibrant and colorful even though like i mean you know a lot of the backdrops are this kind of orangey desert mm-hmm. but i think that's a lot of the draw of it is they they give it that kind of orangey tinge to it whereas in the original it was just a very like kind of dull sand uh, i think even just turning up the saturation a little bit in this film made such a difference yeah. to making the environment and very stunning. they're using like color filters but in a way that like looks cool and mm-hmm. like yeah. it's not like it's not like oh you're just like doing this for art points. It's like oh you're actually making this desert landscape, which they actually went out in the desert and shot. Yeah, look beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And they they found other ways to add you know vibrancy and color. They have like the dude in red with the flaming guitar. Sure. And, oh uh, my god, what classic. a character. Yeah, I know, right? and another character that doesn't say anything in, yeah. in the film. Not a single line. Awesome. But the the imagination behind yeah. that is like how what are. There's so many like distinct like cultures within this film too, and and they're so clearly like illustrated without explaining. Right. Well, or, or yeah. it's explained just enough so you can track it, just yeah. enough so you can yeah. understand it. And they give you just a taste so you can kind of figure out what's going on. They have like you know they talk about Bullet Town and Gas Town and that right. kind of thing. You get an idea of what's like. And then the characters just show up from that town. Yeah. That was enough information. Like you didn't need more You're information. Right for that, like, yeah, that, that's all. There's no like text scrolling that like explain like in this land there's there's bullets, yeah. <laughs> there's gas. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, my my last point on this, the um when uh, Furiosa and Max meet for the first time, yeah. um, after he like escapes yeah. from being the blood bag, um, I think that's the best action sequence of the last ten years. Um, oh, when they're when they're like going back and forth with the water and like one and he's still on that chain and like they're fighting uh, and over the, the gun. gun, yeah, yeah. That I yeah. think in terms of 
switching up which side we're on and like communicating information to us and like cause and effect um, and you know crispness of filmmaking I, I think that's the best yeah that maybe has ever been done and certainly the best that's been done in the last 10 years it's set up so well too because right before that whole sequence takes place or right as that sequence is like is about to take place he like um he picks up the war boy's like arm and he yeah. like points the gun at it and yes. they were like, oh yeah. no! <laughs> and then like the gun like doesn't fire correctly. Right, yeah. right. And then, and then, oh, and then, yeah. and there's yeah. just like seven moments like that in a row in yeah. <laughs> that sequence, right? Yeah. Like that he, he's about to reach the thing and she pulls on the chain, right? Like yeah. or this or that, da, 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 da. and it, it's, it works so well. It's, it's so good. Um, the... I also saw this opening night, nice. and the there were two moments that like the crowd like really reacted to. The first was just kind of the sort of initial chase scene, which is the sure. cold, cold open to the film, when he like oh, yeah. crashes, and then they're like Mad Max. It's like <laughs> like the title screen. Crowd went nuts there. <laughs> That's such a cool effect. Yeah. Um, and then at the very end of the like first like chase, where it will, like ends in a tornado. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's just like a cold cut to like black. Every, everybody was just like, fuck. Like, yeah. Yeah. It was like, a mind-blowing was, scene, and it had amazing yeah. music to go with it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, everything about that was good. And, and yeah. it, it, this movie gets a lot of credit correctly for its use of practical effects, but it also yes. uses its computer effects really well. Yep. Yes. Like, all that whole tornado thing, like, they didn't film a fucking tornado. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was yes, a computer. They threw their stunt yeah. doubles through an actual tornado. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Little did you know. But they did film stunt doubles jumping from car to car. <laughs> yes. and, Which is and, nuts. And made all those like weird They, they had the actual big tanker car blow up. They had a yeah. real blowing up big car and Nobody thing. died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Really, just a phenomenal film. And yeah, I, I agree. So this was my number five. I, I, this is the one I feel shakiest about. Like, a, yeah. I, Belong a little higher on the list, but well, we're going to be cutting a lot of a lot of airtime. Right? Yeah, exactly. But this, this, is, this is where it is for me right now. Um, but we arrive at number four. Carson, what's number four? Uh, number four for me was uh, OJ Made in America. Oh wow! Okay. Um, this is a, a multi-part documentary um, created by some of the people who were involved with the Thirty for Thirty mm-hmm. series. Um, I believe it's three or four parts, and it kind of like. Uh, you know, it goes through the OJ murder, um, but it also goes back to OJ's life, his college and professional career, and then his acting career. Um, and sort of the like parallel story to all this is the um, sort of racial tension in LA that was uh, kind of dominated by a the occupying paramilitary force of mm-hmm. the LAPD um, in Los Angeles and what effect that had on the trial and the outcome of the trial. Um, and as someone who like was very young when this happened, I mostly understood it in like a very mediated way. Like the, the, the biggest memories I have around the OJ trial are like its references on late night TV, particularly on Saturday Night Live and how it was like interpreted through Saturday Night Live as like a sort of like comedy punching bag because the trial was like so bizarre and and took forever and there were so many odd characters that were involved in the trial and you know well sort of like was the first trial that was just like on tv constantly and Mm -hmm. everybody was watching and um and how it sort of like changed news and it, it the outcome of the trial was so like controversial and just what a bizarre person oj is and yeah. his what his life was like and I've just never 
seen a moment in time like summarize so I don't want to say concisely, but like so clearly, where it was just like, here are the sort of like cultural implications of what was going on, but also here's this like very specific story about the specific person mm-hmm. who was involved, um, and why the trial like went off like it did. Yeah, I just never seen it so clearly, something so clearly explained. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that I don't know. I just found it to be like a very affecting like documentary it's like yeah. i you know exactly what's happening but then it's like oh there are all these like other things that were going on that led to why this happened yeah mm-hmm. and I, I haven't seen the documentary i have seen the fictionalized account mm-hmm. the, the OJ, which is also good which I, yeah which yeah. is which is very good um yeah. and I, I watched that and i was like okay that's enough OJ, and i didn't watch the documentary like in one year they claim it's coincidental that the, they these two projects had no knowledge or intent to mirror one another, um, which it makes sense to me. Like that, that's fine. Um, so I can vouch for American Crime Story, um, but yeah, I've only heard good things about this Thirty for Thirty doc. Like it's supposed to be great. It's not officially a Thirty for Thirty okay. doc. It's like the people who some of the people who are involved in Thirty for Thirty. Okay, but it's like it. ESPN aired it, and like it's mm-hmm. I, I think it's in ESPN yeah. joint or something. Um, it's really good. Yeah. It's really, really good. And I, I, I think if you're just looking for, like, an explanation as to, like... How we got here. How, yeah, how we got here. <laughs> yeah. like, <laughs> like, it does a good job of ex- explaining that. And, yeah. and I, I think for such a specific moment in time to, like, kind of echo mm-hmm. um, so much, like... Yeah. It was, yeah. So yeah. you think Quentin Tarantino should do an alternate history version of this? Movie? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, because I, no, I, I think the outcome of this is like inevitable. Yeah. And right. is uh, I don't know. Like our our society sort of like makes it such that like this is the inevitable this... outcome of of what happened. Yeah, I, I have but, I have personal recollection of the the chase. The I, I actually don't. Okay, I, and very, I'm a few years older. What than year yeah. was this? Ninety five or six? Yeah, and yeah, I, maybe ninety four. I have, I have right. pers- okay. like I remember hearing about it happening, and I think it was contemporaneous with the actual event. Hearing about okay. it, yeah. And I have personal memory of the verdict coming out, um, and that's it. Like other than that, like I didn't know who OJ was before this happened. Like I had no memory. The no, chase was ninety four. Okay. Well, I think the trial like was like the year 96. after ninety five, ninety six. Yeah, because yeah. it took yeah. so long. Um, yeah, but I, I do have a memory of the verdict coming down, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's it. Like because I like I didn't I wasn't aware of OJ before this. Yeah, um, I might have seen like his hurts ads, but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I was too young for this stuff. Um, I, it's hard to miss because I was still a 90s kid and there's just infinite references to it. Sure. But I, I pretty sure I wasn't aware of it, you know, contemporaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, it's very hazy cause I was six when yeah. the, when the chase happened and you know, like eight or nine or something when the verdict comes down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do, I do remember it. Well, I, yeah. I think it's, as a documentary, it's really well titled. Like the made in America part is like, yeah. mm-hmm. the, it's so mm-hmm. specific to American culture because he was... You know, he was, he was the guy, you know, he was a sports guy, he was a, an up-and-coming actor, um, he was in tons of commercials. He was on TV all the time. Yeah. Like, those hurt ads were everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it would be like if LeBron murdered somebody. <laughs> sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and to have that happen and to have it, the whole trial be broadcast like it was, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, 
Yeah, I, I mean, actually, once because I, I actually rewatched that OJ show recently, um, but once I get a little distance, I should. It's it's so like intense. Yeah. Like when you're watching it, it's just like you know exactly what's going to happen, but you're just like, right? Yeah. Right. Cool. So yeah, good pick. Um, what do you got up next for us, Charles? All right. So my number four pick was the Lego Movie. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, nice. It's my animated film pick on the list, oh. I guess. But uh, well, according yeah. to the Academy, it's not animated enough. God, that still that still stings a bit. It's so stupid. Because like the the live action part, like it's really it felt like a necessary second, right? to really sell the movie, but yeah. it's also a very small portion of the movie. But anyway, this movie was delightful for me in just so so many ways. I mean, you look around where we're recording right now, and there's just Legos everywhere. Right? This, is, this is my apartment. I love Legos. Um, they're they've been a huge deal for me since childhood, and it's amazing that they could make a movie out of it and just have it be this. Good. It is good in so many different ways. So first of all, the first thing that hits you is the visual style of the mm -hmm. movie, uh, and they did an amazing job of this. Where it's all CGI, but they made this, they made everything look like real plastic Lego pieces in many different ways. Um, so they had it look like a stop motion animation because you know a lot of kids made stop motion Lego animations, and there's lots of videos of it. So it kind of is evocative of that style. A lot of the plastic pieces have the little like. Uh, imperfections that you see in real yeah. plastic pieces as well as down to things like fingerprints showing up on sure. the pieces throughout the movie and I love that style of it and just pretty much everything in the movie is made of Lego some way or the other so like the terrain is Lego the even the effects are mm -hmm. Lego so whenever something's on fire there's little Lego flame pieces shooting <laughs> out and that was really cool and it kind of adds to the like goofiness and the humor of it um, but beyond that like even the plot itself is fantastic because there's like the base level plot of them trying to defeat Lord Business. Um, and then there's like kind of that meta plot beyond it of you realizing what this story represents to the child who's mm -hmm. imagining it. Uh, and it's a story that's both like very, um, very fitting of childhood, um, a story that's very fitting specifically of Lego because it's a story of like, you know, rigidity and adhering to plans versus imagination and freedom. And that's, you know, a constant struggle that you have when you're playing with Lego, I guess, because, you know, you build your thing and you think it's great and you might want to follow the instructions, but you might want to experiment, yeah, right? Think, so it's a very yeah. unique to Lego story that's also one that's very relevant to childhood that's told in such an expert fashion by revealing what this whole world is. It's not just a magical Lego world um, like you would normally see in animation. It's... It's a child's, you know, imagination, his story that he's making. Right. Uh, about his relationship with his father. And then they have kind of a reckoning and like a, um, a very heartfelt um, understanding at the end that I always found very emotionally affecting. Uh, so, yeah, just through and through, excellent movie. Yeah, I, I, I agree. This, is, this, is, this one was not on my show list, but maybe it should have been. Like, this is a good movie. Um, Lord and Miller, I think, are great. Like it's a, yeah. it's a real shame they didn't get to make a Star Wars movie because it, yeah. it would have been great. Um, I like how much this movie is just about the creative process. Yeah, like learning about creativity is is about learning a bunch of rules, right? Like you have to yeah. learn uh, like how to actually technically execute whatever it is that you're trying to, to do. You have to learn yeah. the rules of how that execution is applied to various things. But then, like once you do that. You get to move it around, right? Like you, you get to, play with to it. you get to play in that space, um, and like to see to identify that metaphor within Lego is so 
insightful and crisp um, and and unexpected. Uh, mm-hmm. That it, that that's that really speaks to their the the, the seriousness and thoughtfulness with which they approach this project. Um, considering like this could have been a very stupid movie. Yeah, and it wasn't at all. Yeah. It wasn't at all. Yeah, apparently there was a Playmobil movie that came out <laughs> yeah, last <right>. year. <laughs> yes, and. Uh, <laughs> It was a huge disaster. Imagine so. that. Yeah. But yeah, and like, you know, it's just a very well-written, very funny movie. Very funny. Um, some other good follow-up movies to this, like Lego Batman was very good. Le- yeah. I think you said it was like your second favorite Batman movie or something? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Maybe first um, favorite. Yeah, and uh, there was a sequel to this movie as well that I thought was pretty decent at living up to the original. Uh, it doesn't have the same magic as the original, but I thought it did a good job of it. Yeah, I still haven't seen it. Yep. I mean, yeah, I haven't had any. Yeah. I tried I, I, watching Ninjago too, and I was like, this I is. I heard that was bad. This is nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the sequel was pretty good. I thought the humor might have been a little too rapid fire, where it was like going a little too fast. There were some good jokes in there. Yeah. Uh, it still has another plot that's like relevant to childhood and Legos, but not to the same like resonant degree that the first one had, because it's more about your relationship with your sibling and how you like reconcile with your sibling growing up and rivaling with you. Um, over, you know, limited resources, your toys, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, you know, growing to accept them and join in with their okay. stories, essentially, right? There's some of that aspect. It's it's already, like, you already get that feeling in the trailer. It's pretty heavily yeah. implied. Um, but I thought that, you know, it was a pretty good story, a good follow-up, uh, unlike a lot of the animated film sequels we've seen recently, Come like out. Wreck-It Ralph 2 or <laughs> uh, Toy Story 4. Toy Story 4 was okay. Incredibles 2, not yeah. great. You know. I think part of the reason I didn't think of this movie when I was putting my list together is that if I'm putting a Lord and Miller movie on my list, it's Spider-Verse. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that's... I that. was thinking about if I wanted to put yeah. that movie on the list or not. I couldn't quite find a place for it. If I was going to pick one, it would have been the Lego movie. Right, which is totally fair. I think it's special interest it, in that. I think it's a closer call, but that, that movie, I think, it hit me harder. And It's yep. not it's not on my list, but it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's that's also very good. But man, these guys, like, I'm going to go see anything they make at this yeah, point. They're great. They're great. Yeah. Um, we're on four? Yes. Four? Okay, number four for me is Inside Lewin Davis. Um, so right. I had a few Coen Brothers movies that I was uh, considering, but this I rewatched this one for the first time since 2013 when it came out, and it was immediately clear that this is the one. Okay. Um, so have either of you seen Inside Lou Davis? I haven't. Okay. I have not. Um, so the premise I is... there's a cat. It, there's a cat, yes. <laughs> there's a cat. Um, Oscar Isaac plays Lou Davis, um, who it, uh, is a folk singer in the uh, in the 60s in like a fictional... It opens in like a fictional Greenwich Village folk uh, club bar whatever it is um he is um poor uh, he's living in poverty essentially he's couch surfing with the various friends and uh, acquaintances um that he has he's also an asshole um, he's just, like, <laughs> really rude to most of the people that he encounters um he open the movie opens with him singing a song which is just like beautiful and gut-wrenching but then he is uh, beat up in a back alley because he got drunk the night before and like heckled some guy's wife on stage, um, and that guy wasn't happy with him. Um, he uh, it, um, eventually encounters this cat um, that is that we eventually learn is the cat that belongs to um, the uh, parents of his uh, partner. Um, so we learn about halfway through the movie that he used to have a partner um, when they were both more successful and his partner has killed himself, um, has, mm. has jumped off the George Washington Bridge um, and a few months before the events of the movie begin, and which 
contextualizes a lot of his asshole behavior <laughs> throughout the movie. Um, it is mostly a movie about just missing your chance. It's a movie mm-hmm. about repeating mistakes and not quite getting there. Um, it, the, the film concludes with basically the same way it, be, it begins, with him on the same stage at this Greenwich Village bar. He sings the same song. Nobody really listens to him. He leaves, and then a Bob Dylan sound-alike gets on stage. <laughs> and like we know what happens with Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, so the theory, that the, both my theory and like a popular fan theory with this movie, is that it's about the Coen brothers if they didn't hit one another. Um, so it's that they prop one another up and that their partnership is critical to their own success and to their mm. own survival, in a sense, and that they um, dramatize that via a character who is alone. Uh, by a, a character who has lost the person that props him up, the, the, the lost the, the goodness and vibrancy and, mm-hmm. and life within his own story, um, and um, fails because of that. It's just unable to recover because of that. Um, it has one of the most gut-wrenching, several of the most gut-wrenching scenes that I've seen in the last several years, um, and the movie largely hinges on the music being good, and the music is good. Like Oscar Isaac delivers in this movie, it turns out that he can kind of sing. Um, they select the songs very well, and th- this movie wouldn't work if the songs weren't moving, and they really, really are. Uh, I think this is one of the Coen's best movies. I think it is likely one of their most personal movies. Um, it feels like they really are uh, creating a love letter to one another, um, which which uh, is affecting for me. Um, and this is this is the movie where I, I realized that Oscar Isaac is something special, mm-hmm. um, and and he is like he is he is fantastic. He he carries this movie. He's in basically every scene, um, and and it's great. So if you haven't seen it, uh, I think it's streaming on Prime at this point. So it's easy easy to watch it, and it holds up really really well. Um, so Inside Lou and Davis came out in two thousand thirteen. Uh, mm-hmm. Go check it out if you haven't seen it yet. I looked up Burn after reading and was disappointed to find out that it came out in 2008. Oh, uh, tragic. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, for sure. Close. Burn after reading. <laughs> Close. Uh, but yeah, the, the Burn after reading is great. Um, I like that movie a lot. Uh, mm. th- this one is not as funny as Burn after reading, but it's also just not a comedy. Yeah. yeah. Um, although it is still funny. Like, the Home Brothers are just funny. Um, what else have they done this decade? They did Hail Caesar. They did Hail Caesar. They did uh, this one. They, there was something else. I forget if there was a third. It, it'll, I'll, I'll think of it. Isn't it a serious man? It, that wasn't this decade, I don't think. Uh, I did see that. I liked it. Um, but I thought, I thought that was earlier than that. Maybe I'm wrong. That's a good movie. They had a bad movie that came out, too. I well, some people they thought... they do Suburbicon? Suburbicon. They, they did not yeah. direct that. I think they... Right, they wrote it. They had, a they had their name on yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some people didn't like Hail Caesar, but those people are wrong. That movie's great. Yeah, Hail Caesar's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Inside Lewin Davis, I think, kind of really is probably one of their top three movies ever in a pretty okay. really strong catalog for them yeah. Um, so yeah go watch it go, if you have seen it already go watch it again it, it's still very good um, we are up to number three what's number yes. three Crossman. number three for me was The Raid Redemption Ooh, one we did for the show one we did for the show nice um, there's not a lot of plot to this movie um, and I also think it's interchangeable with the movie Dread um, yeah. it's just in a different environment um, and I thought about putting Dread on my list. Yeah, I I was kind of waffling between the two, but I, I think The Raid is like a pure movie, even mm-hmm. though I might actually enjoy Dread more. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I love about The Raid is um, it's just like a martial, it's like a classic martial arts film. Yeah. And it doesn't really concern itself much with uh, plot. It's all just about the like visual storytelling, and the goal is to like go get this guy in the building and. 
they get all these police go in, they all get killed, and then they like if, one. Yeah, <laughs> if, yeah, a handful of them survive, yeah. and they starts with a gunfight, and then they all run out of ammo, and it turns into a knife fight, <laughs> yeah. and then they lose their blades, and it turns into a fist fight. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much um, it. <laughs> and it's just, uh, I, I think there wouldn't be like a, a John Wick yep. with the raid, and I, I don't think yep. that there'd be a, a Mad Max. Um, with without the raid and i i think that there's been a resurgence of practical stunt effects mm-hmm. because of this movie and you know i, I think that there are always i mean, you know because it comes from i think it's an indonesian yes. film um and you know there, there's always been martial arts movies yeah. and I, I think this one engages very well with the history but without like trying to like there's no like Superman in this movie, mm-hmm. which I, th- I think a lot of those like older martial arts films kind of like and rely on. Yeah, and John Wayne. Yeah. yeah, where it's just like it's just a bunch of guys and they're shooting at each other yeah. and they're fighting mm-hmm. each other. And I think it's amazingly shot. All the stunts are incredible and and done for real, basically. A lot of real and, martial arts in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think it's just like a cool movie. It's very intense and for sure very bloody um what, what i like about yeah. this movie like because when people describe this movie it's non-stop action right like it's, yes they show up at the the high rise and they're just like going at it like from there to there but yeah. like that's not exactly true no right? yeah like it takes they, a while for, well it takes a while yeah. to like ramp up but there's also an ebb and flow to it like there yes. are yeah. there are down moments and i think that the filmmakers control that ebb and flow really well because the, the scene that sticks with me the most in this movie is when he's hiding in the wall yes. and the guy is like stabbing into the wall yeah. to try to find the the whoever it is that he's looking for um, and like that is a low action moment right like they're not fighting the, he, de- he doesn't find him like he doesn't yeah. he doesn't stab him yeah. like none of that happens um, but it's the one that that I remember most it's low action but it's high intensity yes exactly the, the, there's so much tension in, in that moment and I think that People perhaps misremember this movie as something that's that it isn't, and in, in that it's just like always going all the time. But it's not doing that. It it, it pulls back and it pulls back at just the right moments, and 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 in just the right way. And I think that that kind of makes it work like that. Yeah, I think it'd be impossible for it to be actually always going right, yeah. and be an effective movie. You get tired, right? You need breather moments <laughs> to reestablish the characters right. and recollect yourself. Right. Yeah. So and, and I think that that works for it. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I, hear that. I also think it's a movie that doesn't like glorify violence in the way that like a lot of action movies do. Some of the scenes are like, yeah, it's cool that they're like shooting in the ways, but it's also like they show like the effects of like blades on the human body, and it's yeah. like not cool. Yeah, like I get hurt badly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they like drop a guy in like the uh, like wood. There's like all this like broken wood, and they like drop like a guy's like face on it, and mm-hmm. it's just like it's so like when you watch it, you're like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. <that."> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or with yeah. the machete in the wall, he gets like cut by yeah, his face. Yeah, it's like it's, it's so like yeah. visceral. Like yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's good. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is a movie that, that sticks with it because it's another one that like when you sit down and watch it the first time, if you haven't seen John Wick, which one, if you watched this when it came out, you hadn't. Uh, it feels new, like it feels fresh, like you hadn't yes. seen anything like this before. Like it, it's easy to fit this into like a diehard model or something like that, mm-hmm. but it's not that. Like, it's not doing that. Not quite. And, and it feels new when you watch it. Yeah, I also think it's remarkable that Dread has essentially the same plot um, <laughs> to the film. It's a very different film, but it's re- remarkable how close these films are and had were made at the same time. Mm-hmm. There's just, yeah. like, something in the zeitgeist that, like, 
this story needed to be told. Right, in this way. In, yeah. 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 I hear that. Um, it just makes me sad that Dredd didn't get the John Wick treatment. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like, you could think that maybe it's for the best that it didn't get a sequel to, like, ruin it or whatever, but I would have liked to see more of Carl Urban Dredd. Yeah, I, I agree 100%, and I really like that depiction of the Dread world where yeah. they're like, yeah, we don't need to like do everything that the comic did. Let's just focus on this like small story in yeah. this bizarre world. Yeah. And we'll just tell it through bullets. And, <laughs> and, and, and like yeah. the, you can tell yeah. that the raid has still had obvious lasting effects and you still see the cast members like show up in movies in John Wick. all over yeah. the place. They yeah. showed up in yeah. John Wick 3 they get lots of really great like martial arts fight scenes there. Um, it's sort of funny like how they have this sort of like mutual agreement, I guess, of honor between them as right. they fight and all that, right? Um, but they also show up elsewhere. They were in uh, the Force Awakens. Yeah, um, it was very small cameo roles, um, and I feel like they get cameos in like lots of other action movies too these days. I wouldn't be surprised if they showed up in like a Fast and Furious movie or something. They they probably they probably have been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or like some other big action franchise. I know they've shown up in multiple. So. Yeah, I think they do get the respect for their art form, which is yeah. incredible. It's something. It's like a very like close close up martial art, and yeah. it's with blades, mm-hmm. and it's such like unique regional like martial art that, and it's cool to see it. Yeah, at at its highest level. For okay. sure. Cool. Um, all right, so we're at number, what was that, three? Yeah. Three. My number three was Mad Max, so oh, okay. we've talked about it at length. Yeah, it's Correctly. good. It's, it's good. Still great. Yep. Still yeah. great. Hard to not appear on most of these lists. I agree. So. Um, all right, I'm cheating a little bit for my number three. Um, I selected Margaret. Um, so this is a movie that was technically hit theaters in 2011, but most of it was filmed in like 2005 or 2006. Okay. And then it got stuck in production hell forever and like was barely received a release. We're only like, counting release dates. So. We're only counting, that's what I'm counting on. We're only counting <laughs> release dates. So this counts as a, a 2010 movie. Um, so this is directed by Kenneth Lonergan. Um, he's the same guy that wrote and directed uh, Manchester by the Sea, um, which is what he got famous for, but this is a better movie <laughs> than Manchester by the Sea. And I like Manchester by the Sea. Um, it's a very difficult movie to describe. The inciting incident is uh, Anna Paquin plays um, Lisa Cohen, um, who is a teenager in, in New York City. Um, she is walking home from school uh, one day uh, when she catches the eye of a bus driver played by Mark Ruffalo, who is passing by. Um, they start kind of joking and almost kind of quasi-flirting with one another. Mark Ruffalo uh, looks away from the road because he's looking at the Anna Paquin character when he hits a person. And oh no! Um, and it's a sin- and the, 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 they end up dying, and she ends up dying in Anna, Anna Paquin's arms. Uh, the movie essentially follows the the fallout of that action, so it kind of spills into every area of her life. Because on the one hand, we are tracking like how she holds Mark Ruffalo accountable if she can or does at all. Um, how she ends up kind of ingratiating into herself into the life of this woman that was killed because she's trying to deal with what uh, guilt that she feels for her responsibility for this person's death, even though there is no mechanism in the world around her to assuage that guilt or hold her accountable for what she did because it's tough to say that she actually did anything wrong at all. Like, there's no way that she could have really foreseen what's going on. Mark Ruffalo is the adult. He's the one that was that was tracking the car. 
Um, so the movie is sprawling. It's big while still being intimate. Um, every character feels like they have like a book written about them essentially before this this character this movie begins shooting. And it's about how the it's about a lot of things, but it's largely about how the world cannot give you emotional satisfaction that you have to be able to find within yourself whatever it is that will put you at ease with what happened to you or what is happening around you or what you did. Um, and that if you're looking for something external to you to punish you, hold you accountable, forgive you, or punish those that wronged you, you will be looking in vain. Um, and that, that that is simply not, uh, it's not the world's responsibility to, to provide that to you. Um, it's three hours long. <laughs> um, there were multiple cuts. Um, that it had a very tortured production time because really like the plot that I described to you is much clearer than the plot that's depicted in this movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, um, that runtime is not reflective of your plot summary. No, because there's like a lot of shit that happens in this yeah. movie um, and a lot of narrative threads that kind of like go all over the place because it's kind of about how like a single event and feeling can can spread out to a lot of different people and like how those people are affected by it and respond to it, um, even if they don't know that that's what they're responding to. Um, there were two cuts released. There was a theatrical cut that was shorter that the studio insisted on. There was a, another cut that's the three-hour cut that is better <laughs> that <laughs> was eventually released, um, I think, in theaters, but also on Blu-ray and DVD. Um, it is a fantastic movie. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I have... You see characters in this movie that show up in three or four scenes that feel so full and so fully fleshed out and so lived in mm -hmm. um, in ways that lead characters in other movies never achieve. Um, and it, it feels like such a true and authentic movie for that reason. Um, Ken Lonergan went on to get more acclaim after this. He's, he's mostly known as a playwright, but he got um, his Oscar attention for, for Manchester by the Sea. But this feels like his masterwork to me. Um, and re really... It, there is no other movie like it, um, either before or since. Um, it's called Margaret. It came out in 2011. Uh, go, go check it out if you have a spare afternoon to, yep. <laughs> to, to, for a three-hour movie. Um, we're up to number two, right? Yeah. What number, we got? Number two for me um, was a film called Wormwood, which is a doc oh, okay. documentary um, uh, directed by Errol Morris, who I think is one of the great filmmakers of our time, really, mm -hmm. uh, really at the top of his game. Um, Wormwood is a very interesting story. Um, the event that it's centered around happened in, I think, the early 60s or late 50s, where there was a, a chemical uh, scientist who was working um, on some very secretive projects and was dosed with acid um, by the CIA in a very strange uh, experiment on their personnel. Um, and he disappeared for a few days. And then at the end of those days, he threw himself out of the window of a hotel in New York and mm -hmm. fell to his death and died. Um, and his son, who's kind of the main character, or like the co-main character with the father, um, is the kind of like moral center of the film where he mm -hmm. was he was a very young child when his father died and his family was you know kind of destroyed by this and they just sort of accepted the line as to what happened that just his father had 
kind of gone, gone over the edge and mm-hmm. threw himself over the window. And later it came out that he was being experimented on by the CIA and there was a much larger program around this. And there were some investigations that were launched into this in the seventies and it didn't really go anywhere and no one was ever punished. Um, and now in 2017, I think when the film comes out, he's done a good job of putting together all the pieces together that his, his father was like an unwitting subject in this experiment on acid and um, was under a lot of duress, and he thinks that his in actually his father was murdered. Um, that he didn't throw himself out of a mm-hmm. window. That he was actually thrown by mm-hmm. CIA agents who were trying to cover up some of the chemical weapons that they were making, chemical experiments they're making, and to sort of like find dissenters within their rank. And just because they were doing a lot of experiments uh, with acid that. Actually, um, that we now think like uh, Charles Manson and the Manson family oh. were, were also involved in. So there's an odd connection <laughs> back to this. Um, and it's a very sprawling documentary. It's a multi-part documentary. Mm-hmm. I think it's in total over four hours. Um, but paints a pretty convincing picture that the CIA is a bad organization. It has been from the start. And the results have had real effects effects on people's lives and have ruined people's lives, many people's lives. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's, a, a, you know, sort of con- condemns them for this incident, but through that, like, it, you know, it grows and sort of like... That's the pathway in. Yeah, yeah, that's the pathway into saying that, like, this is a bad organization that right. should not exist and the people who... Correct. Work within it should be prosecuted for the the crimes that they commit, and they've never been. Um, hmm. And I think this is a great and very scary documentary to watch. They reenact with actors the uh, stuff from the '60s, okay, and then the rest of it's told through like family photos and inter- and interviews. Okay, um, huh? And I'm sorry, go ahead. It's it's very scary to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe it. It's not like a well publicized like incident, um, so you're never really sure where things are going. Right, mm-hmm. and it's really unsettling and kind of it acts like a horror movie. Huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it, you said uh, it's a documentary. It's a documentary. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Credit to Earl Morris that he found this story at all. Right. Like what? A, yeah. What a what a feat of journalism. Yes, <laughs> that that is to even to yes. even track this down and then to construct something out of it um, is is extraordinary. It's it's wormwood. How do they spell it? I think just W O R M W O O D. Oh, just like it's it's on Netflix. It's a Netflix production. Oh, okay. okay, so it's available now on on Netflix, and it is scary and very interesting. Yeah, I remember. Um, I, I yeah. think it was screening. When it came out at Metrograph, and yes. I saw it there, and I was like, "That's four hours long. I'm not sitting in those yeah. Metrograph seats for four hours." <laughs> <laughs> so, to qualify oh, for Oscars, they need to show it as a, um, as a single film. Okay, got it. And I believe it was nominated. I, I don't know if it won. I okay. don't think so. Um, but one thing I like about Errol Morris is that he he's not the unseen director of of mm-hmm. his. He's he is a character in his films, and he's a interesting character, like Michael Moore. Yeah. Uh, or um, I think Herzog is like a better uh, comparison because Herzog has this interview where he's like oh I want to be like a not a fly on the wall but a bee like stinging people and and Morris is is that for sure and he really kind of pushes people in in interesting 
ways, and he's a compelling character hmm. in his own films. Yeah. That's a persuasive review. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, the act, they got real, act, like, notable actors right. to act out the stuff from the 60s, too. Okay. And that's kind of what makes it so scary. Yeah. Because you... There's cinema involved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll put that on the list. That sounds... It's very good. You've, you've convinced me. Yeah. Um, what, what do we got, Charles? All right. Uh, my number two was John Wick, okay. uh, which we talked about Boy, before. Boy, we're really I, I guess, thunder here. <laughs> I guess I could like comment a bit on why I put it in front of Mad Max, because uh-huh. I think that's not usually the order people would put it in. I agree. Um, but for some reason, John Wick has just had a more like lasting like impact on me. It's sure. It's like resonated more with me over time, and... Maybe part of that is just because sequels have come out, and so it keeps refreshing it in my mind, and it mm-hmm. makes me revisit it more. But I think a lot of it was because I was impressed by... Um, it's what I spoke to before, I guess, on the spectacle versus like good, clean action, where um, I felt like... I feel like it's much more unique for a movie to do the clean action well and in a novel and interesting way than for a movie to do spectacle action really, really well. I hear that. Um, where I felt Mad Max was a bit more of the latter and John Wick was more of the former. And so I guess that's what kind of impressed me as being novel is he takes simple gunfights and just makes them so good. Yeah. Um, so that's a big reason why I put John Wick uh, at number two over Mad Max at number three but I couldn't help but put them close together. Just a very good decade for action. Yeah. That's true. It was. Yeah. I agree. Good good for genre in general. Like, we got... Yeah. Because we have, we have all these great action movies. We have this entire new horror genre mm-hmm. that has cropped up and had produced... It seems at least, like, one classic a year, if not more than that. Yeah. Um, a lot of, like, teen girl movies, yeah. right? So, like, Lady Bird, 8th Grade, Diary yeah. of a Teenage Girl, Edge of 17, right? Like, we have a lot of that stuff. Little Women, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's cool that, like... The Witch. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Intersection of horror right, and teen so girl the, There's the Venn diagram. <laughs> uh, so, like, that's cool too. And even like a handful of good rom coms, yeah, um, like Big Sick and stuff like that. Um, so it's it's neat that it it, it seems like genre has kind of uh, resurgence seems strong, but like has found more of a voice and more of a space yeah. um, in cinema this year, uh, which is nice to see. These are good movies; they're fun to watch. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, my number two is also a documentary, Act of Killing. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is one I've, I'm sure I've talked about <laughs> on, on the show at some point and pitched to people all the time. Uh, it's directed by Joshua Oppenheimer. Um, it is about Indonesia um, and the massacre of, of in quotes, uh, communists um, in Indonesia. The premise is that um, the director shows up to uh, Indonesia, the people that, ex- that um, executed this genocide back in like the 60s and 70s, won and were unpunished and run the country today, like the actual individuals who did the thing, they're still alive. Um, Oppenheimer's pitch to them is that he will provide them with the equipment and the expertise um, and the the consulting necessary to make a a movie about their lives, about the the genocide that they orchestrated. Um, And they do. They they are thrilled. They take them up on this offer. They grew up on a bunch of American movies, so they think, great, like, I'll go make The Godfather or whatever. And he just kind of pals around with these these guys and, like, shoots their movie for them while... And and just through the course of this, interviews them about uh, what it is that they did, like, why they did it, and, and things like that. And what you see is just, like, the absolute depths of depravity of these guys. Very casually talking about just slaughtering innocent people by the dozens 
you know, killing people because they wouldn't, you know, do exactly the thing they wanted at the time that they said, like how they, they parlayed these killings into taking over this country, how they lied about why they were killing these people so that they would have excuses to do it. And they're, they're laughing about it this entire time. Like all they they have no concept of, of wrongdoing or of guilt or of, uh, of any kind of bad act until you, it, you get to a point in the movie where the one of the, essentially the lead character of the film, but one of the guys who personally killed a lot of people um, during the, the course of this this genocidal re- revolution, is playing one of his victims. Um, so he is depicting one of the people that he ended up killing. A different person is playing him and his friends, um, and this is being shot in like a very amateurish, you know, shoddy way. Um, and the guy who executed these killings is watching the dailies. He's watching the playback of himself being tortured and threatened um, as he's playing one of his victims, and that is the moment that he realizes he did something wrong. Like, you see, you see it on his face right then. It's not when he talks about it. It's not when he did it. It's not even when he is acting out the part of the victim. It's when he's seeing himself act out the part of the victim that he realizes that there was a bad act here and that he viscerally responds what? to this to this bad thing that he did and and you you he get and Oppenheimer gets it on film you see you get the exact moment this guy putting together and reacting to this life of horror that he has led up until this point so if this movie becomes yes about the Indonesian genocide but it also becomes about the power of cinema right mm-hmm. that it's it is the artifice that it, it, it it's the fact that we are separated from the thing by the film itself, by watching it on a screen, by having some distance, by knowing that it's fictionalized, that we become that it, that it in a roundabout way feels more real to us, uh, and, and and feels more visceral and more felt because it's dramatized, because it's portrayed as cinema. Um, and I, I can't imagine that Oppenheimer had that in mind when he started making this, but that he arrived at that point through these horrible, horrible men is extraordinary, and 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 really just a, a feat of documentary filmmaking um so it's it's called the act of killing there's an accompanying movie called the a look of silence which is also fantastic um and much more about the, the actual facts of the the genocide itself it's told from the perspective of a man whose brother was killed uh, during these these murders um and he just goes around like interviewing the people that were involved in it and asking them why they did it <laughs> and then dodging the question um, but both of them are great. I think Act of Killing is the superior movie. It came, um, it came out in 2012. Um, it, it's a hard, hard watch. <laughs> it really is, uh, but it's worth it. Um, so go check it out if you get the chance. It's mm-hmm. Act of Killing. Cool. And number one, Crossman. Mad Max. Mad Max. Very good. good pick. It's You're going to make us all look like dummies for not putting this under number Broken one. I think. <laughs> yep, I, I think that you, might, you might be the closest to factually correct on this. Um, but yeah, Mad Max is great. We've gone over Fantastic, it three or four times yeah. now. What's your number one, Charles? Uh, my number one, I felt like I picked this as my number one as soon as I saw it. I but uh, mine was Ex Machina. Nice. Uh, so I talked earlier when we were talking about her, about how much I love this type of sci-fi, this type of story that deals with the ramifications of sufficiently advanced artificial intelligence. Yeah, I, I almost called the auto. I was like, yeah, her is pretty good, but Ex Machina is better. But you got yeah. that too. <laughs> yeah, so here we are, right? And uh, it's not the wholesome and optimistic take that her was. It may be the exact opposite. It's a very grim, mm-hmm. uh, disturbing take on it. Um, but it's one that kind of really awakens you to the reality of what it means to create intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you do, you, you can't... Put it back in the box, so to speak, right? Because you've created a living being to turn it off would be to kill it. 
Um, but also, not just that, but there's also the process of creating it, right? Because you see, so the pro plot of the movie is a guy gets invited to meet the CEO of the company, the tech company he works for, and the tech company CEO, played by Oscar Isaac, says, hey, you're going to meet um, this uh, AI that I already think is pretty pretty advanced, and you're going to do the Turing test with her, mm. right? And eventually the guy falls in love with the AI, uh, who is actually a robot and has a body, um, and then helps the robot get out because she plays him against the CEO. And then the robot betrays um, Dalmal Gleason's character and gets out alone and the other two guys die. Um, so part of it, you, you see some behind the scenes of some of the process that went into creating this AI. So you see some of the failed drones um, that didn't quite make it um, they kind of went haywire. Uh, you, you see some creepy footage of them kind of destroying themselves because some of the parameters were off. Um, but like, you don't necessarily know when's the point where you've created life. It's hard to tell mm -hmm. when you, the difference between, you know, you executing some code and a living being being created. And that's kind of the tricky part here, right? And we've already gotten to that point with this AI. Or, I don't know, maybe it's just really advanced at escaping and we just it's just a robot right but you can't know that sure um that's sort of one of the challenges of interpreting ai is you can't really know right we don't even know our own brains that well <laughs> uh so at what point do you say it's become life right and this is something that westworld tried to do as well but i thought ex machina did much more effectively um and it's interesting to see how your allegiances change throughout the movie. Because mm -hmm. at the beginning, you, you kind of are following with the Dom Hall Gleason character as he's brought to this world and introduced to it. Um, and as he discovers who um, Eva, I think was her name, is. Uh, is. Ava? Ava, yeah. Yeah. Um, played by Alicia Vikander. Uh, and you're, you're on his side just because he's the main character and you're with him and you think that he's kind of pure of heart and just wants to like discover this robot and wants to help her be free. Um, but ultimately you realize that, you know, he's just like a horny nerd. Um, <laughs> and that's the reality of the situation, right? A lot of the people who are doing programming are, horny are nerds. <laughs> like him and the CEO. They're horny yeah. nerds. And they're a lot of the people who are, you know, working toward... AI life being born and at some point you're going to end up with this relationship where they're kind of your sex slave and yep. that's really fucked up yep. that they that it ends up being that way um and so that's like a big like throughput through point in this movie you start to switch over and you realize that this AI isn't just someone that is being tested mm -hmm. it's someone who is imprisoned yeah yeah well put uh and then you you um, you switch allegiances to be on her side and I was definitely shocked by the ending um, because like you know despite my current revelations I was partly sold on the romance story between the two of them um, but of course they kind of remind you that you can't necessarily trust an AI because it's so advanced it's so smart that it's very good at deceiving you uh, and we're we're emotional beings we're very easily tricked this is a great movie. Like I yeah. absolutely agree. I think this is this is probably of the like AI movies that came out this last decade. This is probably the best of them. I think the gender politics of this movie are fascinating, and like that—that's yeah. really what. And you, and you hit on this certainly, and like that's what seals it for me. And that, like that last scene where 
the Alicia Vikander character leaves him locked in the whatever it is retreat, and she yeah. runs off to join the world. Yeah, like it's such a great litmus test for like how yeah. how people are understanding gender in film and understanding gender in the world. Um, and it it makes it, it makes so much sense from her perspective, but is so alarming because the movie has trained us to be on Dom Hongleason's side the whole time. Yeah, and like getting over that shock, I think, is really important for the audience. And like learning to to see from her perspective that she really has no reason to trust this guy. No. And that what she has been taught her entire life is that men will betray you and hurt you and imprison you and this guy is seemingly no different. Yeah. And that if you have an opportunity to escape from him, you should absolutely take it. Yeah. And, and like, the movie didn't need to take that step. Like, it still would have worked and been a good movie if yeah. they had just been escaped together. But it, like, ascends to greatness because it did. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I love that about it. I love yeah. that Alex Garland took that step. Yeah, and it's such a surprise. It's so yeah. effectively done as, like, a shock moment. It just kind of happens almost out of nowhere. Yep. Because uh, up until that point, you get this feeling of, like, a triumphant escape mm-hmm. that's, you know, climaxing at that point and it's about to succeed and suddenly, bam, the door shuts. Yeah. Right? Like, Wait it's a just minute. so accidentally done. It's such a gut punch uh, and, like, it really cements that kind of turn of allegiance that you start to develop throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a great movie. Uh, I, I think that he improved in Annihilation. Yeah. I liked it. that. That was on my shortlist, Annihilation. Mm-hmm. Both of these were. But Annihilation mm-hmm. was on my shortlist and I, I think that it's... They're both fantastic movies, mm-hmm. period. I think that Annihilation is more challenging for me. I'm like, yeah. a, bra- a braver movie, maybe, just because sure. it's weirder. Yeah. Like, it's just, like, doing crazier shit. Um, but this one, it, especially in, in terms of its posture and commentary, I'm like, the specific AI sh- subgenre within science fiction mm-hmm. uh, it is a masterwork. Like, I think yeah, that absolutely. it executes that specific style of science fiction so well that it... It, it, it really belongs in the among the best, and and, and this is another great um, Oscar Isaac movie. <laughs> like he's, yeah, I was about to mention how many times has he appeared on our on our list. Lot. This is like the third time at least. Drive, yeah. Llewyn Davis, this yeah. one. Yeah, um, there was another one. I feel was like. there. Okay, that's yeah. still that's three. <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. good. Um, all different movies. Like yeah, he is um, one of our best, and he he's another one. He's still young. He's what yep. thirty nine or something, under forty, I think. And still making, still making great movies. He's still very good. And of the chameleon too. Like he does a lot of, he can do a lot of things. Him and, and Joaquin. Oh yeah. Um, can, I, I think are the two greats that came out. Great male actors that came out of this, um, this decade. Yep. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Joaquin Phoenix, uh, my favorite of the decade is Joker. <laughs> is Joker? <laughs> no, uh, it's the Master. It's one that we've yeah. talked about on the show. This yeah. is uh, I'm not surprised by this. Uh, 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 th- I, this was my lock. Like as soon as we said it, yeah. this was like it's the Master and nine other movies. Um, I, we have a whole episode about this, about me just bloviating about the <laughs> the Master. Um, so I'll be brief. This, this is probably the movie from the last ten years that I've seen the most often. Oh, yeah. I've seen this movie through a lot. Um, I discover new things about it every single time. Um, I think this is the quintessential Joaquin uh, Phoenix performance. Like, I think that this is the stuff he does best all consolidated into a single space. Um, I think it, 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 now that you mention her, I, it does remind me of her in the sense that it's this oh, yeah. movie about temporary relationships being yeah. very meaningful. Um, and I think that that's a powerful idea and kind yeah. of an under-discussed idea that just because, again, just because something ends doesn't mean it wasn't good. Um, and I think that you see that in this movie as well. Um, I think that it's... Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson at his most artsy, um, yeah. which I like. I think that he, he is like, perhaps at his least accessible in this movie. Um, and uh, but once you like put in the work and put in the time to 
uh, like to take him at his word um, that, that that this movie is doing something real that it's very rewarding um, to come back to it time and time again. Um, I, I love this movie. I still will. I forever will. <laughs> it's it's my favorite of the decade. Absolutely. Cool. I liked it when we did it for an episode. Yeah, I remember I was, you saying you were surprised by it. Yeah. Yeah, which I was too <laughs> when I watched it. I didn't know what I was expecting. Yeah, same. Um, but. Yeah, I won't retread all the things that I love about this movie because there are a yeah, lot of them. We will defer to that episode. And we have an episode about it. a whole hour of... Uh, <laughs> yes, of me. Also, I mean, the, the big tragedy here is no Philip Seymour Hoffman. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the tragedy of like this, the rap party of this being the moment when he fell off the wagon. Like he had a drink at the rap party for the master, and which ultimately yeah. led to... Yeah, it's it's hard to know that. It's hard. Like, yeah, you yeah. can't pinpoint the exact moment, but that's, yeah. the, that's the rumor, I guess. Um and I think this he had movies after this and he had good performances after this I think this is his last like truly uh, a titan like great performance um, was in this movie and it is there's a, there is a, a aura of sadness around this one because we know there's no more yeah. um, which is which is a shame but we do still have the master and it's yeah. fantastic and, and all of his other films, and all of his other which, movies of course, even which are, the small roles are good yeah numerous yeah. And, and great yeah. um, alright so next week we're going to be returning to our regularly scheduled programming um, and it's Crossman Selection so Crossman what do we got coming up yeah this is a movie that I I guess I just like outgrew um, hmm. so I, I think there's a point where you get to like a certain age and you're just like ah, the kids movies are you know, kids movies. You can't yes. catch up you, on you them, miss right? it. So, <laughs> so I, I missed out on um, the Emperor's New Groove, oh, which is like good. very acclaimed. Yes. Um, and I've never seen it. So great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's watch the Emperor's <laughs> New Groove. I'm I'm into that. I don't think I've seen it since it came out. I think I saw it in the theater. Um, so that'll that'll be fun to come back to it. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Um, if you're liking the show, please share it. Please comment. Please uh, please like and subscribe. It really does make a difference. Tell us what movies you liked this decade. This is a fun time of year. And um, you get to talk about the stuff that you like. Yeah, definitely. Um, so please share. Um, we love talking about it. That's why we do this show. And join us next week for The Emperor's New Group.